1: This, the sort of irony is that when they hit, hit substances that they um, that they regarded as, as in some sense alien and horrific, they couldn't apply the same doctrine as they applied to, to nicotine and and and, and, um, and alcohol, which is which is control and tax. Um, they just banned, and it's at that point that all the wrong things happen, of which the chief one, which obsessed me, was supply. You you can't control demand of something that people do not believe is doing them serious harm, until it really is doing them serious harm. Um, The question is the suppliers. And I just felt from the beginning that to try and ban, arrest, control, limit, eliminate the suppliers is like saying, um, you know, you can drive your car, but it's illegal to sell you petrol. It's not going to work. It didn't work.
2: Sir Simon Jenkins has been at the forefront of this issue for a very long time. He's written about it for The Guardian He's been involved in influential reports He's also got lived experience Which always helps And I think this is the first night of the realm That we've had on the podcast So thank you so much to Sir Simon Jenkins You're listening to Scrooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network Brought to you by ACAST In association with Elite UK Here we go Behind your barricades. Yeah but how
3: long
2: Thank you so much for joining us again. As I said, we're talking to Sir Simon Jenkins and it's a personal privilege for me and I'm pretty sure the rest of us can agree with that because we're also with J.S. Raffaelli and Neil Woods, colleagues of mine. Both of them have written a book called Drug Wars which is out at the moment and I very much urge you to go and get it. It's a perfect one to put on your list. Along with their previous book, Good Cop, Bad War, which is all about Neil Woods' story as an undercover cop. Let's get straight on with this because there's so much to unpack. So we're talking with Simon Jenkins in his house about drug war history. I can't believe we're here with Simon Jenkins in Simon Jenkins' house with J.S. Raffaelli and Neil Woods because we're going to be talking about, well, all sorts, because I think it's fair to say that Simon has been Pretty much at the forefront of this issue in certainly in journalism terms for a very long time because the war on drugs in quotation marks we you know we kinda of still use that terminology it's it's been a contentious issue since the 70s and beyond that but you've been one of the first people to really champion the issue of reform um at what point did things start to connect for you that actually might want to do things differently well i i can't remember drugs at university
1: That shows how old I am, Um, and uh, it really wasn't an issue. I mean, a few weirdos took dope and so on, or whatever we called it then. Um, And it wasn't until I came to London to work and began to cover drugs as an issue in London, uh, and that was exclusively heroin. I mean, heroin was the issue then. Um, uh, uh, That that, that I became aware of it. it, it wasn't a problem, and the concept of there being a war on it. Would have, been, would have seemed ludicrous. There was a problem with it, uh, and that problem was with a few hundred, uh, never more than a, a thousand or so um, addicts. And these addicts, a lot of them were nurses, there were people in the medical profession, there were people who for some reason or another had become addicted to heroin, and it was legal. They had to get a prescription, uh, and I used to cover the, the queue at the at Boots uh, Pharmacy at midnight, one all-night pharmacy in London, when they got their, their shot for the New Day. And we regarded them as as rather sad figures who who needed sympathy. Uh, You know, there was there was there was sort of a a, a vicar who used to preach to them, (laughs) try and help them. It was at no point a a sort of threat to society, and it wasn't until the the, the, a few doctors started rogue prescribing that the thing sort of started to get out of hand, and that was illegal, and the law started to get involved with 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 basically um, disciplining doctors. Um, but it wasn't for some time after that that the thing became a kind of a, a major issue, uh, and, and in particular marijuana became an issue.
2: That's the perfect segue, because just before, as we were setting up, we were talking about this very issue, the fact that you were covering the line in boots. Um, for, we'll get to Jason New on that very, very shortly, because I know you're itching to speak on that, because it's covered in the new book. Um, but what was that like? What was, the, what was the, as you said, the demographic of the people was probably very different to what we perceive. You said it's, it's not who you think of, you know, the stereotypical addicts, which again are using quotation marks. How, how was that cue look into your eyes back then?
1: My recollection is it, it was basically people not unlike me who'd fallen rough, on rough times in some way. I mean, the, the, the dossers, the people, uh, you know, sitting, sitting around fires in the East End were on meths um, or, or something else. But it, it was it was nothing that we talk about now, uh, and and it's really what fascinated me as as as, as the years rolled by was how he created a problem out of no problem.
2: JS, I'm going to bring you in because it is it's covered in the book in the drug wars. Um, at What point for you uh, did you start thinking this is an interesting topic?
0: Um, well, I've had a personal and professional interest in drugs for since my teenage years. <laughs> um, but so I was interested in, in this as an issue my whole life, and then obviously worked with Neil on the first book. But it was really interesting what Simon just said, and it's absolutely that's very much the story that we were telling. Once you begin to dig into this, the history, in a historical, from a historical research point of view, you start uncovering these statistics like uh, I don't have the exact numbers to hand, but at, like between 1959 and 1964 the number of heroin addicts in the UK would rise from 96 to 342. And I remember 342 is a real number. And this was considered a real uh, scandal and crisis, that there were 342 heroin addicts. Um, and when the Misuse of Drugs Act was eventually passed in 1971, how many addicts, heroin addicts were there in the entire UK? 1,049. And we've gone from that to several hundred thousand now. Um, but the idea, just the idea, that there was a time in living memory where you could count, you know, the, the number of heroin addicts in the entire country could fill a small, could fail to fill a small music hall. It's incredible, it's, isn't it, Neil? And this mad. is
2: this is where your work comes in because you've got a lived experience of this. You were the pe- you were the person that was ultimately charged with arresting the people that we thought was a problematic consumer. Uh, what was that like within your job? And you cover it within both your books. But it must have been a, a, a nightmare, surely.
3: Well, I mean, the, the thing is, when I started, I believed in what I was doing, though, because I, I believed in, in in what I'd been told, that this, this was a terrible problem, that we need to fight and fight as hard as we could to, to try and win. But only by actually looking at the history that we can see, as Simon's just said, that this is a problem of our own creation. There was no problem until we perceived it as such and tried to do something something about it. Um, it it's it's really shocking just how much the in, the, the increase from a thousand up to three hundred and fifty thousand only twenty years later. I mean that that's horrific, and the, the cause and effect is is really quite clear. But so I mean, you asked me what it was like dealing with it, but. At, You know, when I was actually working undercover trying to catch the drug dealers the people I was manipulating and sort of um, causing harm to were problematic heroin users but they wouldn't have existed without the policy
2: and and this is why it's a thrill to speak to you Simon because again the the historical element that that you bring to this the fact that if we retrace our steps we may be able to work out where we've gone wrong is it important we look back and think actually there was things we could have done, done differently
1: well, you, you you've got to put it in some something of a of social context. Um, clearly, as. A big city like London gets richer as it develops um, leisure habits and tastes that aren't necessarily legal. Um, it was likely that marijuana would become a problem. It was likely that ecstasy would become a problem. It was therefore likely that cocaine and heroin would become problems in some sense. The question to me is not is not could you have stopped that happening. I don't think you realistically could. The question is how do you react to it as a society? And the interesting thing about really all Western countries is they reacted with horror. These were taboo products. Uh, they weren't alcohol, they weren't nicotine, which they could understand and they, could, they felt they could control. To a certain extent, they were right. Um, uh, the the, the sort of irony is that when they hit, hit substances that they, um, that they regarded as, as, in some sense, alien and horrific, they couldn't apply the same doctrine as they applied to, to nicotine and, 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 um, and alcohol, which is, which is control and tax. Um, they just banned. And it's at that point that all the wrong things happen, of which the chief one which obsessed me was supply. You, you can't control demand of something that people do not believe is doing them serious harm, until it really is doing them serious harm. Um, the question is the suppliers. <clears throat> and I just felt from the beginning that to try and ban, arrest, control, limit, eliminate the suppliers is like saying, um, you know, you can drive your car, but it's illegal to sell you
2: petrol. It's not going to work. It didn't work. Feel free to jump in, by the way, Jess, because I saw you as kind of... I I just,
0: I want, Yeah, I, I wanted to respond to something that, that Simon said um, um, before. A phrase you said, we all thought of them as quite sad cases when you see these guys outside boots. And I think there's something really interesting in that, which speaks to stuff that we were... With, that I discovered anyway. Uh, Neil might have already known about it but as we were writing the book, which is an attitude. It's not just about the number of heroin addicts that there were. It's about the way that they were regarded. And it's a particularly British way, mode of regarding them not as moral failures. And there was a, if you read the discussions from the time, there was no no language about that they were evil or that they they were failures in a moral sense. They were regarded as unfortunate cases. The moral condemnation came from an American uh, conversation, an American rhetoric, an American way of speaking. Um, which was directly contrary to the British way of doing things. And the prohibition of drugs, really the story that we tell, and a huge discovery for me in writing the book, was that there was a thing called the British system. It was a British way of doing things, which was an absolute contradiction to the American uh, guns and ammo prohibition approach, and was internationally known in policy circles as the British system, but has been completely written out of the story. It's a it's a lost thread of British history. So it was very exciting for for us to like uncover that. And now, I, like whenever we do speak on this, I, the first thing I say is, "Who's heard of the British system?" Nobody's heard of it. It's been written out of our story. And to to me, it speaks to like really profound things in like the British intellectual and political tradition. Very precious, liberal, pragmatic. Traditions, and I think that's all for, true for you as well, right? Oh, abs- think, absolutely, yeah.
3: absolutely. But 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 no one's heard of it because the history is generally written by the victors, isn't it? And and the the drug prohibition is American moral imperialism, and they did win. We
1: um,
0: for, for, for now,
3: for, for
1: now, <laughs> for now. We, we wait, um, wait a minute. They'll be they'll be the ones that cure it. I have huge faith in America. Oh no, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm just—I'm on my way to LA at the moment. I mean, yeah. the, the, well. the, 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 the solution will be for, The problem is in America, and the solution is going to be in America. But that's a prediction.
3: Yeah, okay. well, well, I, I hope so. I mean, certainly proving uh, what you've said with um, with cannabis, what they're doing in California, going live this year, is is going to be huge, I think. Um, but I think it's it's interesting that the central drug that we're talking about is heroin, because for for drug wars, we studied the. Um, The debates for the Misuse of Drugs Act, both before and after the election, led by a Labour Home Secretary and then a Conservative. And those debates were lots of boring stuff in there, but some, some absolutely fascinating stuff as well. Because it was quite clear that what the politicians were scared about was heroin. And it was quite clear that they didn't understand at all that every other drug isn't heroin. They, they, most of them had no idea of the concept of the difference between cannabis and heroin, and the, and the various risks and the comparative risks. So it was fuel. It was the fear of that drug being fueled by American pam- pamphlets. That actually drove the whole debate and and the whole shift.
1: Uh, I, I remember I was in America a lot at the time, and I remember arguments with people precisely along the ter- terms that, that that you're saying. Um, and I remember, you know, I mean, some some Americans says to me, "And um, you know, you, your country's so left wing. We were communist at the time," was their view. And um, and yeah, yeah, you, you you got this thing. You get drugs on prescriptions, and I said. No, we can get heroin on prescriptions. We get heroin on prescriptions because these people need help. And that's the way we have a. Yeah, it's your National Health Service, it's communist, you see. <laughs> and um, I said, well, you know, is yours going to work shooting them? <laughs> um, uh, the trouble with the Americans is they just love criminals. I mean, you've got a whole new class of people that are going to declare criminals. And that's the way you keep the American police employed. You've got to have an endless new immigrants, whatever it might be, they're all criminals. And we've got to lock them up. And very pro-American normally, but not in matters of penal. But but what was interesting, I think, was way was the way in which what 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 you Neil described as being the the the, 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 um, the this this, this sort of interesting attitude to heroin, um then is transferred into what at the time was not a big thing. It was rather a sort of party drug, marijuana, um, but but just wasn't very prevalent. Um and then suddenly marijuana explodes because just people like it and it's vast numbers of people start taking and, you and know, as the sixties progressed and we, we went to parties and so on, I, I didn't myself, but I mean, it was a kind of relatively speaking alternative thing to do, to take this stuff. And the fact that it was illegal was absolutely of no consequence at all. Um, and a lot of people were going to prison, it was always thought to be rather like crossing no man's land in the First World War. You know, One of your friends got bust, and that was terribly bad luck. But from then on, um, the thing just snowballed, and, and it was almost as if... Um, a, a, a police industry, of which you were you were a part, a police industry was developing, in which you got a whole new, new 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 cause celeb, which politicians were loading onto you, and the politicians didn't really want to know that you were winning; they just wanted to know you got a good, good battle going, because you know, fighting drugs sounded good.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and and um, and from from our perspective, from my point of view as a police officer, a former police officer. The police were really well and truly stitched up by mm-hmm. being given drugs to control because it said there is no policing solution to drugs at all, and that's where the big breaches in Peel's principles came. Both uh, principle seven, that the police of the community and the community of the police, um, that was breached. But perhaps most importantly, is it Peel's principle number nine that the evidence of successful policing should not be. Uh, in- for the policing to see seem to be happen, I've, I've worded that yeah, terribly. Yeah. But you know, you know the yeah, one yeah. I mean. The one I mean, where you, where police activity is not proof of police success, is probably yes, a better way of, better way of putting it. Uh, but 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 unfortunately, we have we have this world of um, photo op policing, where where or the Royal Navy or the National Crime Agency will photograph tons of cocaine and 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 show this as as evidence of success without ever being honest that we don't actually seize more than 1% of the overall um, uh, percentage that's imported of any commodity. It's less than any business losses of any international corporation. And, you know, if we had that honesty at the same time as those photographs... that. That photo op policing, then um, perhaps the public would have a different view, but that
1: honesty is not there,
0: and maybe without tacking four zeros onto the end of every estimated street value well, Whenever well, I,
1: I, I remember I remember having a conversation when, when I was on the um, Runsomman Committee the Police Foundation on drugs. We, we did talk to a few people who had purported to be dealers or I wanted to if they really were, but I always remember references to these these big busts when they were, when they were seizing vast quantities of cocaine and whatever it was. And they always said, "Oh, it's our it's our it's our best day when you see that. You know the price are going to go up." Hmm. Uh, and you know, we 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 you know, as long as it wasn't us. <laughs> but, yeah. but I mean, the idea that seizing quantities of stuff is a victory is crazy. It just increases the price.
3: Well, well, actually, actually, it doesn't because, because uh, I I bought yeah. heroin between nineteen ninety three on the streets and two thousand and seven, and I was paying ten pounds for a zero point one two of a gram. Uh, deal in 1993 it was the same average weight in 2007 which i paid 10 pound for and over that period of time the average purity went up so what other commodity is so inflation proof you would be paying the same amount for over that period of time and the strength would go up so it it doesn't have that impact since since drugs were banned they've all uh, over time got stronger more dangerous and more varied yeah go for it, Jess.
0: Yeah, I want I, to come to two two things that you said, which are really interesting. One about the American conversation. Just I don't want to derail back to that, but I don't want to forget to mention this either. That though the that American conversation you're having is also inseparable from Amer- the American conversation around race and how each of these drugs and it was, it was a lot of what we trace back in drug wars is heroin was attached to the Chinese and opium very early on from the 1880s and there was a tabloid feverish tabloid press around this cocaine to african americans cannabis to latin americans mexicans and the the, the conversation around drugs and pro- the prohibition of drugs and the the insane american conversation around race are are threaded together their the roots are intertwined and one can Cannot be taught. Talk- and that w- in a way which was exported here and of how the tabloid press reported drugs here, and a kind of imitation of the yellow press in America, um, which had a hugely deleterious effect impact on the the national conversation and the national consciousness of of what drugs were. Yeah, sure, that's true. Yeah. The the other the other point was a really interesting thing. You talk about the the economy, the a policing economy was born. It's a really great way of putting it. And what we uh, saw in drug wars from the sort of 70s till now is actually like twin economies were born. it was really interesting because um, in the 70s, early 70s, there, there were very few drug dealers. Obviously, there were very few drug takers. Um, and the, like the aristocracy of the drug world were like the armed robbers. And we talked to guys who were like, who, who came up in that era. And as drugs came in, they were like, yeah, of course I became a drug dealer. Of course, why am I going to go out and rob a bank? Why am I going to knock over a security van when I can make more money every day with less risk of getting shot by, by selling drugs? Um, so very quickly what happened is the, the aristocracy of the criminal world became the drug gangs. And now now you're in a situation where you can add up all the other criminal enterprises – Add them all together, and you won't get a fraction of what people make out of drugs. And drugs form the capital, which is then reinvested in other criminal enterprises. On the flip side, the parallel is within the police. In the late '60s and early '70s, if you were a cop, the last place you wanted to be was on the drug squad, because it was like basically a traffic warden. It was like the geek thing. You know, you want to be out on the flying squad, and catching you know catching bank robbers and murderers. And what Neil describes over his career, is you see. How the drug squads became the rock stars of the police, and get, they get the funding, and, the, and it's this really weird parallel, parallel economies, and one feeds the other. So it was, it was very interesting to hear you talk about that.
1: Well, I, I can remember um, what was the name of the um, police chief in the '60s under Roy Jenkins, the great reformer, Robert. Um... Oh, yes, I know who you mean. We um, will Google it and put a link. Yeah, what was it? yeah. Um, we, we we had we had lunch with this with got His book upstairs. Um, anyway, we had lunch with the um, chief of the Met in the early sixties. It was no, it wasn't the early sixties? It was the late sixties. Uh, and those days there was real trouble with with the uh, with the um, the CID, and the CID were in league with bank robbers, mm-hmm. perfectly clearly. And um, and he said, I'm going to wind up the CID, and he wound up the CID. It was the most amazing row about it. He had Roy Jenkins right behind him, who was Home Secretary at the time. And he said, and we said, you're going to do what? What about all these bank robberies? He said, they will stop. I always remember him saying, they will stop. He said, you're telling us the bank robbers will stop when you wound up the CID? Yes, they will stop. And they stopped. It was unbelievable. He said, every single one. I mean, the, the bank's pretty well protected. Every single one is an inside job. And the inside job involved the police. My worry, he said, is what they go on to next. And it's exactly what you're saying. The policemen were making serious money out of banks, bank robberies. They went on to making serious money out of drugs. And I was sitting next to a former cop with a Met, who was there two or three years in the Met, having come down from York. And he, he said, he said, I could stand it for two years and had to give up. I couldn't handle the corruption. And he said, I, I said, well, what's it like in York? He said, it's nothing like the med. Mm-hmm. And I said, is it really that bad? You know, this is, this is recently, this is in the last 10 years. He, he said, it's the drugs. He said, it just is absolutely impossible. You cannot, he's uh, totally of, of, of your persuasion, you, you, you cannot
2: control a market for which there's a huge demand. You must have seen that in what you did, Neil, surely.
3: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, nowadays we have a situation where the kind of corruption that I've seen could not be paid for with any other kind of criminality because we're so very good with CCTV and other w- ways of in- investigating crime but there's never been anything in the scale of the illicit drugs market anyway um, I mean in in Good Cop Bad War I, I talk about uh, having my team infiltrated by an employee of um, Colin Gunn's group This he was paid £2,000 a month on top of his police wages plus bonuses for good information and um, by the time I met him, and thankfully sussed him out, um, he'd been in the police for seven years. Seven. Seven years passing information to one of the nastiest organized crime groups in in the country.
2: How does it? How does it get away for that amount of time? For seven years, that's just inconceivable. Isn't well, it? there's there's
3: very little defence against this. I mean, you have to face facts that he, he was paid by Colin Gunn to join the police as a young man, and that's the obvious tactic to try and infiltrate police. It's the most effective way of doing it. You can't defend against that. So in, in, in the debriefs for that situation, senior police uh, and, and various ones from Nottinghamshire have said to me since that we accept, they've said to me, Woodsy, we accept this happens. You know, With this much money involved, how can this not happen? That in itself should be enough reason to reform straight away. We, we should not be allowing such corruption.
1: I mean, I... I got to know as a journalist, most chiefs of police over the past 20 or 30 years, um, uh, including I have to say most impressively now Cressida Dick, they all say the same thing, which is what you just said, to which the next question is, well, what can you do about it? Um, because all city police are vulnerable to this kind of uh, corruption, pollution. Um, and the, the, the kind of me- method tended to be to form a special unit that's not corrupt. And, uh, and that's why you've got 20 or 30 effectively private armies in the Met now. And they're unreformable because they are really tight-knit. They're, they're fraternities within fraternities. And um, they all say the same thing. Well, we, 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 can, we, we set these up to bust the ones that you, you haven't yet bust. Um, uh, then they become problematic in themselves. The question is, how do you they do, they, well, then at least you can disband them and put the guys back on the street or wherever it is. Um, But, of course, it it, it is a very unsatisfactory way of running a police force, and not to mention running a city. And now, what what interests me now about the whole thing, which is why I think the situation is more serious than it's ever been now, is, of course, as as you were saying, that that, that crime needs to fund itself, and it funds itself through other forms of crime, in this case, through drugs. The the, the worst thing that's happened in London in the last 10 years is is the gangs. And, and, And it's the relationship between new groups coming into London... Looking for security, finding it within their group, and their group becomes a gang, and the gang has to find a way of financing itself. It does it through drugs and that that to me is a really poisonous way of running a, te- a city uh, and, and thats when, but you will not you will not attack that until you get rid of the drugs as the issue. They may find second hand cars or something else to do it with, um, but but they 'll have to find something else because at the moment the money's so good out of drugs
3: yeah absolutely, but you <sighs> Quite often, when I debate police officers, one of the things they will say is, "Well, it's pointless getting rid of the drug markets because the criminals will just find other criminal things to do," which is which is very illogical because crime's not caused by criminals; it's caused by opportunity, and the opportunities for other crimes are already being taken. Apart from those crimes which need massive investment from investment from for, with money, and the money would come from the drugs, so actually you reduce all of the forms of criminality by removing the black market so but that's not I don't think that's a complicated thing to understand and I, and, and I think most police most police will understand that but the, the reform the, the lead, the leading voices of reform are increasingly from police for example in Durham or North Wales or Birmingham and I, I predict and hope that they will continue to be so because we, we need to be honest about what we're seeing I think.
0: Yeah and certainly the in what we're seeing about corruption um the whole last chapter, the whole last two chapters of Drug Wars are, is specifically about police corruption. And the last chapter in particular is, I mean, we talked to this guy who was a very high-level cop, running high-level informants, running witness protection. He eventually had to be put into witness protection himself because he became a whistleblower about racism and corruption in the Met. And the worry was that his corrupt police colleagues were going to take a hit out on him using their own network of... Of informants um, the, what he describes is s- such deep endemic corruption um, and he's very clear and the evidence is very clear that that, that form of corruption can can only come from the uh, illicit drugs market and yes there was back in the day the bank robbers colluded with the flying squad and there was definitely a problem but comparing that to what's going on now is comparing a semi-severe hangover with the bubonic plague. It's just different leagues. Yeah. It's different leagues. It's uh, yeah. So I,
1: I, I'm interested to pick up on the on on the the, um, the objection that um, if we if we give up on drugs, they'll find something else or. Um, uh, you know, th- th- there's always a market for the illicit, the illicit, illicit cigarettes, illicit hooch and so on. They're not big markets, but they're always, there's no point in doing it because something else you're gonna gonna be worse. I, I just don't buy into that. And I'm fascinated to watch now in Los Angeles, in, in California, and in Colorado and, and, and Washington State and so on, um, what is really happening. What is happening to the people who used to peddle marijuana? Well, the answer is most of them are still peddling marijuana. <laughs> they aren't going to prison. Um, but um, but I mean the the, the the absurdity of it here is you've got you've got kind of squalid deals taking place behind pubs you know all over London, whereas whereas my son's part of California um, you know their courses now in 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 um, in. Uh, in uh, tasting different sorts of marijuana there's there's um there's, uh, there's sommelier, sommelier classes courses, yeah, uh, yeah. Th- th- i mean it is now very very high grade and um, sonoma county um the, the 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 actual vineyards are being converted to marijuana fields i mean they're, they're, this is now a totally legitimate industry now, I'm sure there's trouble on the cocaine front. I just don't know about that. But clearly, um, the, the, the concept of going legitimate with marijuana is no different from going legitimate with alcohol back in the prohibition period. Uh, and and it, 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 the only way you get crack this, I think, is just by publicizing all this. I can write as often as I can. I write about, about you know, going to a marijuana tasting in, in L.A. or whatever it might be. Um, because, because we're looking primitive in this country now. We're just mm-hmm. looking primitive. No other word for it.
0: From, from being absolute world leaders from a position that Britain occupied for so long with the British system as an absolute world leader and the invention of what we call harm reduction the whole strategy of harm reduction is a British invention it springs out of a British intellectual tradition and in a really again it's just a very precious way of thinking the liberal pragmatism that was born in this country and we've completely lost it I mean, we've, um, it's, it's tragic and it's uh it's something that could be reclaimed it's ground that could we could lead again very without breaking sweat it wouldn't be hard it would just take a bit of moral courage from our leaders
2: and, and this is really interesting because it, there's so much that i want to get to there because um, i was reading some of your old articles simon and and you bring up the point that's something that we're addressing it's something that kind of js touched upon with, with with what we're doing with with race issues you know how it just completely gets um balled up and raked up within the drug war but you also brought up the, the historical precedent of the moralization of homosexuality and how we did start locking people up we stopped locking people up for that it, can we draw parallels from that or is that a little bit too crass can we can we actually still think in terms of this is a moral issue and if you present it in the right terms publicity wise people start to get it is that where journalists start to come into their own
1: well i mean i 'm reluctant to uh, ascribe too much power to journalists, <laughs> but i 'm also reluctant to let them off any hook um, and uh, there's no doubt the Daily Mail has played a huge part in this. I mean when we produced the um, the Police Foundation report, which was pretty mild, I mean I barely signed it, I and mean, I signed it because I just didn 't see any point in not because we, we were saying good things but um, Jack Straw was a home secretary. <clears throat> He was telephoned by Alistair Campbell, who said, this thing's coming out, and um, if we look remotely soft on it, we're going to die, we'll be killed. You must write a piece right now for the News of the World, slamming it in advance. So Jack Straw did. Uh, absurd piece came out. Um, when, when it came out, the Daily Mail, whom I have to say Ruth Runciman had prepared fairly carefully, she's got a lot of trouble with Paul Dacre, saying, so, you know, don't be unreasonable, you know. And uh, Paul wrote a piece saying that this is a perfectly sensible report, and we ought to take it quite seriously we hadn't recommended legalization we had recommended declassif- decl- declassification of marijuana whereupon a humiliated Alistair Campbell calls up Jack Straw and says, you've got to write another piece saying it's a jolly good report. <laughs> that, 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 that was the level of the debate taking place. But it was revolving around the Daily Mail, much to my interest. Um, because actually, I remember at the time, most newspapers, the Daily Telegraph at the Times, they were saying, we've got to move forward with this debate. It's silly to be locking people up for you know, carrying around marijuana. Um, there was a general consensus, which, of course, now is even stronger. What fascinates me, the reason why I will not go to a single drugs meeting ever again for the time being, is I do not want to discuss whether or not marijuana should be legalised. I want to discuss why it is that the establishment in Britain seems, seems to find it so difficult to even discuss it. It's the, the problem is not about drugs. The problem is about power in Britain. And um, and I, I, the reason why I just love America at the moment is the Americans are capable of cracking it. The British have not got the guts, or the British elite hasn't got the guts. Almost everybody, I'm sure, if you had David Cameron you know, you know with you now, or or, or or John Major, or anyone, they'd all say, "Oh, I think it's probably time actually." and I'm sorry, I didn't do more when I was in
0: power. I, everyone says at the moment they retire. Yeah. Everyone. I mean, every president across America—they're yeah. all in favor. Yes.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Mm. we we have seen that recently with Lord Hay. He came out, and there's yeah. just been so many. Everyone pe- says at the Lord, moment they retire. Lord Falconer has yeah. apologized publicly. Yeah. and yeah, hopefully yeah. going to be a guest on this very show. He, that, that he, was
1: a big he did it with style. I yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That, was, that, that was, was good. Pure class. Yeah, I like that. how they do it. The <laughs> fact <laughs> is, when they're in power, they haven't got the guts. Well, you said.
0: Well, what you said about the mail was very interesting. We, you know, we with the for the book, we interviewed Brian Paddock. Who is a forward thinking guy and a very clever guy and an ethically minded guy. Um, and he did this experiment when he was command- police commander of Brixton of decriminalizing, and it broadly worked with mix- mixed results, but it worked. But what the male did to him yeah. of m- digging up some ex lover and paying him to lie, and I'm allowed to say that because he had sued him and he won. So I'm, al- I'm not defaming the male here like they defamed him. Um, is an object lesson in why people are scared to talk about it. And you mentioned the mail, and what they did to him was—I mean, I'm a member of the press, and I think it's morally unconscionable and breaks every journalistic ethical tradition that you could think of. And it's gross, and they should—anyone involved in that should hang their head in shame.
1: Well, r- r- rolling forward, as I always trying to do, how will we make progress? Um, and we've made a poorly little progress over the years. I mean, we, On the whole, the police now are decriminalizing in the literal sense of the word. But, the, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, until you stop criminalizing supply, you do not solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So the problem, the entire problem lies with supply. And that's true right across Europe. And Even if European countries go on about how we've decriminalized and so on, they, 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 the fact is that billions of, of euros and pounds and dollars are still being made um, trading drugs that ought to be made legitimately by ordinary organizations. And the thing I find so encouraging in America is the thing that people couldn't get their head around was the idea that, that, that crooks could become legitimate. Mm-hmm. Well, they haven't become legitimate. Legitimate people have taken over the crookery. I mean, the, the, they're selling marijuana. But it's no problem. I mean, there are they're, they're, they're conferences in London hotels about how to invest in marijuana companies now in London.
0: I've, I covered them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You covered it's them. Really interesting. Well, there
1: we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, it is interesting. And it just shows that most predictions of doom don't, don't apply. Um, but but I still do not see how we get a, a, a sort of core. I mean, the, the, the Home Office is clearly the key department, and the Home Office is, is, is unbelievably um, I- impervious to the concept of reform. Uh, it really is, as is the judiciary, uh, and they're, they're a part of the trouble because they still persist in sending people to prison for drug offences, which they don't have to do.
2: And that, that's fascinating because this is something that we speak about regularly, isn't it, how the U.S., they are leading as much as you don't think that they're going to be as progressive as what we are, and like you said, liberally, but the state-by-state model that they've done, they're starting to get those dominoes to fall. And whereas, when
0: America changes, it changes fast. It goes, doesn't it? They, they, they go off, We've yeah. spoken
2: yeah. about how there is potentially some restorative justice going on with the industry, the fact that people with ethnic minorities and also disabilities are now getting in on the industry and also expunging of criminal records so they can get in the industry. Do you think we're going to have more of a conversation
0: out in the States? In all honesty, I think you know more about that than I do. All right. And I think you should talk about it. Oh, okay. (laughs) It it was very
1: interesting the other day. I I did a piece about this, about about, about about America-Britain parallel. Uh, Donald Trump when he came to power and so I can discern anything from this guy um, uh, He said, you know, I'm not gonna get soft on drugs. I'm gonna hold the you know, federal government's against drugs. It's absolutely firm um, The other day someone picked it up. He was asked the question. He said he, he doesn't believe in interfering in the states freedoms And it was, it to me it was I mean This guy can change his mind, but it was it was a genuinely significant change mm. and you sense that he, he, he got the message
2: So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. That's the thing, isn't it? Is once public
0: opinion starts to lead you start to see changes. You've got Donald I, Trump on
2: side. You're making progress.
3: Well, <laughs> yeah. well, well,
0: I think across the board on this, I think the politicians are behind the curve from the, from the public. I, and I, and I, th- I think if they had a little moral courage, particularly in this country, I think the public are way ahead of them, I think. But I might be wrong.
3: Well, but- yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, I think the most a decent and substantive... I can't remember what the poll was, but there was a recent poll that said suggested 59% of the public supported... Um, cannabis reform cannabis law reform but I, there are the beginnings of a change within politics though because oh yeah yeah uh, i i spoke at a side event at the labor party conference just at the recent conference and it was a packed room um and it was hosted by Thangam Debonair and uh, Jeff Smith two very good MPs they're, they're not fringe MPs they're both party whips they uh, i think Thangam debonair has got the the biggest uh, majority in the House, and and they're you know they're they're people who've got a major future in the Labour Party, and they are leading an internal campaign for labour for Labour to adopt um, drug law reform policies, and the, the the support in that ring was was incredible, and one person stood up and said I've been I've, I've been a member for twenty eight years, I've waited all of those years for this day. And that's the kind of energy in the comments. But it's not just Labour. You know, Crispin Blunt also has allies in the Conservatives. And he, he's brilliant on this topic and, and quite courageous, I would say, as well.
1: And I, I, the Daily Mail's changing too, I can tell you. Quite, quite. Yeah, I think the. Uh, I, 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 I mean, this, this is, these are good times in theory. Uh, in fact, I'm actually more worried. I mean, I, I just know it'll come. I'm more worried about how we handle hard drugs. And not just hard drugs, but legal hard drugs. And you know I've got this problem in my family, and I just see what I see—the the, the effective decontrol of the narcotics market in the wider sense of the word narcotics—and the one thing I don't want to see I don't want to see a policeman anywhere near it. Whatever problems we got, they will not be solved by policemen. With all respect to your profession, uh, they will be solved by by, by medics, um, by 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 the care system, by the education system, whatever. But, but but the idea that, that you destroy someone's life by criminalising them is any sort of solution. We go back to, if you like, the morality of it all is just wrong.
2: I'll bring you in on this, J.S., because that's a really good point, is that how that we get listeners on this that have got no idea on drug policy. We manage to get entry-level people, so we're quite lucky on that. So how do we solve someone's concern of hard drugs, in quotation marks? What is the British system that you write about in Drug Wars?
0: Okay, so... As so, most of the drugs that we talk about, opium and stuff, were originally legal. You could buy them at high street stores. I'm going to give you the super fast version. As the 19th century turned into the 20th, new professional classes emerged. Like pharmacists was a new idea that you'd have a professional pharmacist, and a new civil service bureaucracy was created in the Home Office. And what immediately happened was there was a tussle, a sort of turf war between these two systems, two bureaucracies, about who was going to control the these drugs. In America, the law enforcement guys were always going to do that. In Britain, what happened was the medical profession took over with loose control from the home office. Um, And through that system, if you were a a heroin addict, you got a prescription from your doctor. Um, It was just not considered an issue which the police were the appropriate tool to deal with. Um... What that, that, that has many effects on how a drug market works, but its main effect is that there, there's no black market. There's no incentive for anybody who is an addict to sell to another person to finance their own habit. And that, what I just described, is the main mechanism through which drug addiction spreads. If you look at the epidemiology of drug addiction, heroin addiction in particular, that's how it spreads. So if you're an addict, basically you have a choice. You can go out and steal 100 pounds worth of stuff every day, which is quite a hassle. Or you get six other people addicted, become their supplier, and that finances your own habit. In a sentence, that's how heroin addiction spreads. What the British system does is completely eradicates that mechanism. Because why would you sell? You could just go to Boots. You get it from the NHS. The British system used to. Well, when it worked. That was was the British system. As soon as you apply, as soon as you cut that system, um, for instance, so there's a, ...apocryphal rumors that were picked up from Kenneth Leach, the vicar, and and others. It was sort of corroborated. Then 63, 64 the American New York Mafia held a big meeting in the Hilton Hotel here... ...and was like, okay, how can we set up a drugs operation in London? And in, in fact, they decided, why bother? There's no market. Because we can try and sell to people, we can get them addicted, but then they'll just go to the NHS. So there was no... they just decided not to set up a black market. As soon, I mean, within weeks of that system being curtailed, the black market heroin started trickling in through the through Chinatown. The guys out of Hong Kong brought in, and the problem kind of metastasized from there into what we have today. And as soon as, and yeah, and it damaged it damages the police. I think most police would agree with you that the police are an inappropriate tool with, for which to deal with this problem. And when you try and use The wrong tool to fix a problem. You don't just not fix the problem. You damage the tool itself, and it's bad for the police.
3: I I know. um, I I take your point, Simon. That that perhaps some of the answers now coming from the United States. Um, But but during that time when the British system was thriving, the United States still had a very aggressive foreign policy to try and persuade us and, and stop the British system. But the most ludicrous situation where, at the time in the 1950s, for example, when the United States was Trying to persuade British politicians to follow the prohibitive way of doing things, they had hundreds of thousands of heroin addicts, and we had hundreds, and 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 that evidence should have been so clear in the lead up to the Misuse of Drugs Act, but but it, but the debate was farcical, unfortunately.
0: But as I always say, like when it comes to drug policy never underestimate the capacity of politicians to ignore evidence. <laughs> yeah,
3: absolutely. Well, well
0: the, the Ministry of the Drugs Act, as I remember it, w-
1: w- was primarily directed at the fact that, 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 um, that the illicit suppliers were, were, in a sense, undercutting the NHS. Um, so it, it was, it, it was, it was a, almost sort of a benign concept, um, but it required classification and all these things to happen, which, which just got out of hand because the, the zest to control got the better of everybody. Um, but the but the I mean I, I kind of started with a sort of old fashioned neoliberal market economy approach to all this. As you know, just look at the market. What's the nature of the market? Where, where where is the demand, and how does the demand meet supply? And I mean, what 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 you said about about how how you how you make money as a heroin addict, is it's, it's so true. I mean, we had, we had a girl looked after our son, and uh, when he was very small, she was actually a golden girl. She'd been a nurse. And I'd had a conversation with the I'd, I'd had paracetamol or something. I had a shot of what it was—advanced morphine—and it was the best thing I've ever had in my life. And on uh, on day two, when he comes to give me a sleeping pill, I said, "I want what I had last night." And then the nurse said, "You can't have it. You can only have it once." The doctor says, "You can only have it once." And I said, "I'm an NHS patient. I want my rights. I want what I had last night." And she said, "You can't have it. I just—it's totally forbidden to give it to you twice." And I said, "Well, you know, I want to know what it was, and I want to know." What it was. And it was interesting because this girl um, had said to us, well, she was in exactly the same position, and she had it. And because she was a nurse, she could have it twice. And she became an addict as a nurse. Mm. Drops out of hospital because she becomes a serious addict. Desperate, has a boyfriend who is an addict, and that was it. Now, she comes to us, we didn't know any of this. She's with us two or three years, vanishes one day in prison. Mm. I think to myself, what kind of system... Mm. What kind of problem is that the answer to? Mm. And and it, it, it was it was the collapse of what you call the British system, um, and we we haven't advanced on that in twenty thirty years. Mm.
2: You, you cover that in both books, mm. Good Cop Bad War and Drug Wars Neil, and especially in your career, you must have seen how vulnerability was the precursor to a dependency. Surely.
3: Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I spent a lot of time getting to know problematic heroin users, and I think something we haven't touched on here in particular, which I think is a very important thing to mention with heroin, is that it's not the chemical hook is the story. If if someone, di- you know, people can go into hospital and have that shot of morphine multiple times, and it, most people are going to have no problem and not get addicted to it, despite the theoretical idea that it's a chemical hook which causes it. It's not. There are plenty of academic studies which, which show that two-thirds of problematic heroin users are self-medicating for some kind of childhood trauma either sexual abuse, physical abuse, or some kind of neglect. Two-thirds. It's not just me saying this, and many academics say it. And this is an important point to note, so that if, if, at the times when I was picking on those problematic heroin users and manipulating people to introduce me to gangsters, what I was doing was manipulating people who were self-medicating to try and deal with the memories of their childhood and this is the reality of drugs policing where someone has a drugs problem you're just you're just making a miserable life more miserable instead of and all of the amount of money that was invested in me and my activities it would have been far cheaper to take care of those people
1: if if uh, if we come back to the role of the policeman in this um the the, the uh t- t- take another problem which is mental health at the moment now, I mean, I've, I've got a couple of friends who are policemen, and and they're they're very interesting. They say, you know just as the doctors always say we're, we're, we're picking up the problems that the police should be dealing with so the police are giving the problems the doctors should be dealing with um, but, but in the grounds of mental health and, and from what you're saying so many people who are involved in the drugs business in, in drug consumption are there for a complicated psychological reason they're not yes. there I mean some of them are there because they just enjoy it well for God's sake but the, the, most of them are not there for that reason they're there because they, 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 this is the response to them now the recent question of cannabinoid um, medicines which I just found England England it's very worst. Um, we're beginning to crack it, but it was just awful. Um, and now it's the same as the case with mental illness. <clears throat> and um, the, the idea that in some way that, um, that, that uh, deploying the forces of law and order to handle these problems is the appropriate way of doing it is so primitive. It's just so backward. And I, I sort of feel for the police because, I mean... Um, the, the police are the last the last bastion of order against disorder. And and when everything else has been withdrawn under austerity, whatever it may be, you, you're forced back to the person who picks up the wreckage. And the person who picks up the wreckage is the policeman, usually.
2: I, I mm. saw this in action just last week. I was coming back from a conference on drug policy. And in St Pancras toilets, there was a, a vulnerable woman injecting and the police were cordoned around it. And I, I was, I was literally there thinking, what do I do? Can I get involved in this with the, with the sector I'm in? And that must have been awful in, in the line of work that you were in, seeing that level of vulnerability, Neil, and yet still not, being able to do what you think that you should do to be able to help them. Call release.
0: That was. Could, That's should, what you should do. Should have done actually because they yeah. provide legal, yes, specific legal advice to people in exactly that situation. Yeah, I'll put a
2: link so, into that in the, in the scrolling yeah. bar. But it, you must have seen this tenfold.
3: Yeah, I I have, but but for many years, um, I, I I saw the people really struggling with their existence. But I still sort of saw them as prey, to be honest people people who I could manipulate. I remember um, the um, the the event which is in Good Cop Bad War when I was I I, I got some heroin with three other people and um, I was going to share a bag with with somebody. And but they want, all wanted to inject. so We went to these derelict toilets, which which were just foul, dusty, horrible place. And um, they all started to inject. And I was having to step out of the squirts of blood from people's people's veins. You know, as it's sort of showering around me and blood dripping onto the powdered concrete and things. It it, it was messy, but it it was just. Um, it was i just i was just seeing it as part of the job you know being horrified by it and having this great sympathy and and wondering how fast I could get to a telephone box to report an overdose but but it but it was still you know the front line of policing is is still about catching those people at the moment and and, and we we just have to turn that around.
0: Because just give it a bit of an up. um <laughs> we we say. we've also we we've also Neil and I have witnessed the Reverse story to what you described, Simon. Because we sat with a woman in her front room uh, as she snorted prescription heroin from the UK government. There are still a few hundred people who do get prescription heroin. The British system never actually died, it sort of bubbled along under the surface. It was just curtailed. They did a classic British sort of political fudge where they like said, okay. You're allowed to do it, but you have to apply for a special license and then just stop issuing the licenses. But it did survive under the radar, and there are still people, a handful around, who get prescription heroin. Now, this woman had been a very long term, is still a long term heroin addict. She's been using about 45 years, and she was living a very chaotic life. She went through some really rough times in her life, a semi abusive kind of home life from which she ran away. Um, And she had supported her habit for years from selling to sex workers. She was arrested, but instead of putting her in prison, she, there was one forward-thinking probation officer who absolutely changed the course of this woman's life, because she had heard of this clinic in Liverpool, run by this guy named Dr. Marks, who was pr- prescribing heroin. And she went, and she spoke to the guy, and he gave her a heroin pres- prescription, which he has maintained to this day for 40-odd years, or ever long since the eight, mid-'80s, and um, and the moment she got that prescription, she never bought from a drug dealer again. She had a regular supply. She's still a heroin addict now. But from that moment, she regularized her life. She got a job. She, out, she bought a flat. And we sat in her flat, which she's she paid, owns. She's paid the mortgage off. She's yeah. paid the mortgage off. She has another flat, which she rents. She, uh, she has, she's still at works full time. She has a daughter and a granddaughter who've never touched drugs. She's a, a citizen, a member of society but she uses heroin every day, still. She's good company actually. And she's all right, yeah, yeah she's yeah, all right. Yeah. She can tell the story, she's all right. She makes yeah. a good cup of tea, like yeah, she's sweet. Yeah, um, yes, a lot of it's to do
1: with the, with, the, with the words you use, I think. I mean, I, I've, yeah. I've always, I've been always fascinated by I the, the, having once had colon cancer, how, how the word, what, what words you use to describe it. Mm-hmm. And I met a person who was an oncologist, a brilliant woman, and she, her special subject was the language of cancer. She said, you mustn't, mustn't, mustn't say cancer. You must always use a definite or indefinite article oh, yeah. a cancer if you've got a cancer and you've had wow. it out it's gone you haven't got cancer anymore if you've got cancer it's a sort of death uh, wish and the, the same in a sense i mean the way you were talking about drugs there i mean the language we used to describe it and the reason why i say like what's happening in california is they're talking about marijuana as if it was wine I mean, it's on the wine pages of the bloody newspaper. Um, the, 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 it, it's, it's coming into, in, 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 into conversation in a way in which you're discussing taste and style and brand and image and all these things that go into discussing food and wine. Or um, any other commodity. As, as, app- as, opposed, yeah. to, as opposed to even it, even it not being a crime, but even being a problem. Yeah. It shouldn't be it as a problem. Now, I think making the leap, and it's the big one, making the leap from, from, from marijuana to, to to cocaine and heroin, particularly to cocaine, um, is is going to be difficult, because um, I mean I can't quite see a cocaine sommelier, but maybe maybe, maybe there's one in the making somewhere. Um, but it, but it, but the way we discuss it is so important to the politics of it.
0: Um, can, I don't want to monopolize, but can, yeah, I just want to. I can't tell you how much I agree with what you're saying. Like a huge thread of what we did, told in the book, is like how the way things were reported in the press. And the, tab- the tabloid press in Britain have like, this peculiar power because um, it's a centralized media landscape or something. But, um, so I did an event with, oh, God, his name's gone, Duncan. He's a veteran crime reporter. He was the crime guy at The Guardian, Duncan. Scottish name. Uh, it's gone. Duncan Campbell. T- Campbell, oh, yeah. He wrote Hack. No, no, ha- yeah, ha- yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, so mm. we did this event, uh, event together a few mm-hmm. months ago. And we just read out a series of, like, quotes from British and American press from, like, the 30s, 20s and 30s, about the way they spoke about drugs and race. And these were, like, it was gross stuff. I'm not going to soil your podcast with it. Um, But every time we read out one of these quotes about black people doing cocaine or Mexicans doing weed or whatever, you could just see the audience wince. They just go, because we just don't talk in those words. We don't use those words anymore. And the point I'm trying to make at the end, and we we say it in the book, is the way people talk in the press about vulnerable people who use drugs now, who are often self-medicating, like you said, Neil, um, in 10, 15, 20 years, we'll look back on the people who wrote these things about drug users today with the same wincing horror and cringing kind of like shame with which we talked about racism a few decades ago. And that's the prediction that we made. And I'd like, so, word of warning to all you editors out there. <laughs> Ke- careful, on the internet, it's forever.
2: <laughs> yeah. I completely subscribe to that, absolutely.
0: Right, so we can't thank Simon for
2: enough for doing this because, it's just, oh, well, I don't think we can uh, have a conversation like this with anybody else because you're so kind of rounded on this subject. So, let's just quickly wrap up. Where do you think we're going to be in five years' time if I can push you for a prediction? We in Britain.
1: In Britain, um, I think a, a lot. Well, uh, sorry, there's an answer. Question, a, a lot will depend on where we are in Europe, because cause, I mean, whatever you, we you, whatever we do over Brexit, we, we we will we are one continent on these matters, um, and and uh, if it's different, whenever we always see when someone liberalizes and the next door place doesn't, there's always a, a, a distortion of trade, and you can't get a proper reading from it. So it doesn't matter what happens in Europe, but I think the whole of Europe will go get, get the American way on marijuana. I really do, and I think that'll be the great breakthrough. Because the biggest money by far, I mean, was it 80, 90% of the market in America is marijuana? And once that whole market is denied to the criminal class, um, and I don't think cocaine and heroin going to be anything like the the, the prevalence that um, marijuana... And I don't know about other forms of drugs. I just don't know. But I do think it'll be better. I mean, I think, I think there will be the breakthrough in this country that there has been in America. I really do think that. Um, heaven knows what form it'll take. But there's no reason why it shouldn't... I mean, we're not that different from California or, or, or Colorado, for goodness sake. But... Um, but I think, I think what, what, will, what will be interesting will be the way in which we react to all forms of self-harm, I'd almost say, but all forms of the, you know, the way in which we allow people to live. Um, it did start in many ways in the 60s with, with, with sex and homosexuality and abortion, and um, in those days with, with, with sense about drugs. Um, and we have moved on the whole in a progressive way. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist about the way society develops. So I do think it will develop in, in a decent direction here. It it just simply amazed me it's taken so long, that's all. But I'm, I'm an optimist.
2: And and just very, very quickly from J.S. and Neil, pushing you for a prediction in five years' time, where do you think we'll be?
1: Well, I mean, I,
3: I agree. I hope, I hope we're there with cannabis. But to, to me, more important is... Um, Return to a British sense of harm reduction and having harm reduction policies with with every drug, um, having harm reduction as an overriding principle in how we look at every drug is the way forward. I think because eventually the conclusion is the ultimate harm reduction is a regulated product. Agis.
0: Yeah, like I mean, echo what Neil says. I mean, uh, I urge people to stay true to a pragmatic British liberal tradition, and to me, uh, prohibition. Prohibition of drugs is, you know that bit in the cartoon where the wolf has chased the bird, but then he goes off the cliff, but he's, his legs are still whirling, but he hasn't quite looked down to realize he's run off the cliff? That's what prohibition is right now. He's off the cliff, and he's about to look down and go, Phew
2: I love that. That's a perfect <laughs> metaphor. Well, Simon, Sir Simon Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. So thank you so much for listening, that's probably the last one of 2018, so we'll see you in 2019, and we got a good first one lined up, it's pretty impactful I think, Uh, and of course I need to do thank yous, Uh, 2018 has been a brilliant year for us, we won two national awards, Silver Award at the British Podcast Awards for Smartest Podcast and Best Current Affairs, we beat Blue Planet, Ed Miliband and Radio 5 Productions, which is just crazy isn't it, the fact we're competing at that level. But we wouldn't be able to do it without the people behind us. So thank you so much, Tristan and Nikki, the producers, because without them, given hours and hours of their time, we would not be here. So thank you so much to them. Thank you to as Pip as well, because without being on his network, goodness knows we wouldn't have the exposure that we do. So thank you so much, Pip. And also, one on the subject of our network, please do listen to all of our Distraction Pieces Network guys, which are Save Our well To Drugs with Susie Gage, uh, Hardcore Listening with Christian Stew. Uh, films to be buried with with brett goldstein which is just rocketing up the charts off the beaten track with Stu, which again has done really well on itunes and also Tuesday night george jim smallman who's always brilliant he's just fantastic and also thank you to my name is ad for making us look pretty goodness knows we wouldn't be here without you either because you give us a sheen so thank you so much if you need any artwork go find my name is ad and of course the social media without our two social media workers, John Harris on the Distractions Pieces Network. Please listen to his podcast, The Dream Factory, because it's genuinely fantastic. And I'm hoping to be a guest fairly soon. And also on Leap channels, go find John Cross, who is our tireless social media manager. He does at UK Leap on Twitter, at UK Leap Instagram. UKleap.org on Facebook and UKleap.org, our website. Finally getting to remember them. Right, now I've rambled on, I'm going to wish you a very, very happy new year. Thank you again for all of the interaction you give us, the shares, the likes, the nice comments, the ratings. It all helps. We're going to do it, aren't we? We're going to achieve this. We're going to uh, destigmatise addiction and make sure we get some degree of drug law reform pretty damn soon. So, on that note, thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. Bye.
3: Behind your
0: barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Yes,
3: we're through our southern street.